Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Arthur Chung, founder and chief investment officer of Defiance Capital, a DeFi-focused fund based in Singapore. Arthur is a true DeFi OG and has been involved in the synthetics community since early 2018. He's a long-term oriented investor who's built a discipline around distilling the FUD and noise from the fundamentals. In this episode, we unstack what those DeFi fundamentals are, his valuation framework for assessing tokens, and Defiance Capital's portfolio allocation and unique market positioning. Arthur also talks about why DeFi is the ultimate product market fit for crypto and breaks down his thesis for why a DeFi bull market would be more sustainable than the 2017 ICO market. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Arthur, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Thanks for having me. Arthur, you're a well-known name amongst the DeFi crowd, of course. You're on Twitter at Arthur underscore zero X. But allow me to introduce you to those tuning in who aren't as familiar with you. You've been in crypto for about three years now, and you manage a fund based out of Singapore called Defiance Capital, uh, which is a crypto asset fund that combines elements of fundamental research with an active investment approach. Defiance Capital has a very bold and memorable thesis, which is as software ate the world over the last decade, DeFi will eat traditional finance during the next one. Prior to Defiance Capital, you started a research firm called Chaintech Ventures. And basically, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 2019 was a really big year for you in terms of expanding your involvement in DeFi, right? And getting hands-on experience working with a number of key projects in the space, which continue to do well, such as Zillica and Haven, which is the predecessor to synthetics. I'm sure you're continuing to be involved in these communities in some capacity, but why don't we start off with a good story? Is there a distinct memory from your early days building the Haven and synthetics community that you can share with us? Oh, sure. So I think that uh, it was interesting because uh, I joined the Haven back then, the community uh, during the October, 2018. And that was already, we are already in the middle of the bear market at that time. So uh, the price was down from the ICO and people were mostly quite uh, inactive in the community. And so in, and I was one of the very few people that, uh, that were still interested in the project and still uh, went to the Discord group to ask questions and uh, discuss with the team member almost on a daily basis. And it was quite hilarious because I'm literally one of the only 
less than five or less than 10 people that talk during a day. So the, the community was much uh, quiet back then. And then uh, one interesting story is, uh, you know, there's a $6 meme in the synthetics community. Like people kind of use the $6 as their target price. And actually that uh, come from a random guy that always come into the community Discord. There's only one word that he would use, which is when $6. I mean, <laughs> he literally didn't talk about anything else except that exact phrase. He didn't respond to anything. That's the only phrase he asked. And so we would just kind of dismiss him as a troll. But I think mean, after a while, this meme kind of take hold. That we just use it as like a target price for the community. So I think that's how the $6 price came about. But obviously, yeah, he's no longer in the community, but it's just a very funny encounter back then. Nice, nice. Do you find yourself continuing to be participating a lot in these Discord channels? Or, I mean, I've seen you on other interviews wearing and wrapping the synthetics brands, wearing the shirts. So how else are you involved, I guess, in, in the project today? Uh, I would say that right now, uh, on a pure Discord side, uh, definitely not as active as previously, because I think that uh, right now, like, I'm managing a fund, so definitely that I would need to split my time across a lot more different segment, but I still hop onto the community from time to time just to get a feel of mm -hmm. what people are talking about and participating in the discussion. Um, yeah, so I, I think that there yeah, are less involvement, but more uh, high quality uh, discussion. It's just a uh, feel good, you know, to spend time talking to the team member there. And there was a lot of very intellectual discussion about DeFi back in the days uh, in the synthetics Discord because other DeFi protocol, they do not have very active Discord group yet. So in synthetic discourse, it's really the place where you can get a lot more uh, intellectual discussion. But right now, obviously, that, uh, is, that is not the only place where you can have this level of discussion, right? I feel like a lot of people know you as an investor, um, but those who have read your blog posts or have come to understand who you are and the things that you've done prior to founding Defiance Capital will know that you're a trader as well. And this probably comes as an extension of your time at BP, where you were a commodities trader in the oil and gas industry. So which came first, Arthur, the crypto trader or the investor? Uh, I would say it's actually a mix of both. Uh, I actually uh, started investing at a very young age of 20 years old. So actually, like, I mean, some of the local media in Singapore actually did an interview with me when I was in 21 years old about like a young investor in Singapore. You can still find it out on YouTube, but I'm not going to mention it. So uh, actually, I started investing in stocks from a pretty young age and obviously lost some money as well. Uh, and that was a time where I ferociously read about every uh, books about investing I can find. And I mean, uh, all the good investors will have their own uh, investing philosophy. It's your guiding principle on how are you going to invest. I mean, the strategy or the technique will always evolve with time a little bit, but the philosophy usually doesn't change too much. Yeah. So I think uh, what I found is my investing philosophy that aligns the most is growth at reasonable value. I think that uh, in this world that uh, most of the gains are being made from uh, from growth. Like the human uh, nature is just that we want to grow and improve compared to the previous uh, situation. So I think that's just a very natural element of uh, human nature. So that is why that I, I, I prefer to focus on the growth investment rather than like a pure value investment. And I think that uh, some some investment, it can always outgrow the initial value that you invest 
when you invest into them. So I think that in a way that, um, so the, the, on the valuation side, I'm not that uh, particular about, you know, I must invest when the price to earning multiples is below 15 or what. So yeah, I'm more focusing on the growth side. Obviously that I do not want to overpay as well. And then uh, I think my experience in BP also shaped me in my uh, understanding of the fundamentals. So I think that uh, one thing that uh, a difference about oil and gas trading and with uh, like the trading that retail perceive is actually it's very fundamental focus. I mean, most of the oil and gas traders, they actually do not trade the directional price. Instead, they trade on the futures basis. They look at the fundamental, the supply and demand, all this thing. So I think that this uh, helped me uh, when it comes to crypto investing to look at the, the, the token distribution schedule and how the forward supply and demand is gonna affect the token price as well. So I think that, uh, but it's always a very fundamental based approach, but I will take the, the short to medium term market dynamic into account as well when coming into making an investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like in the commodities world, really what drives a lot of these trading decisions is the macro aspect of things. And, you know, that's kind of been thrown around recently, of course, you know, during during this year. But when you relate it back to crypto, where there aren't so-called fundamentals as we understand it in the traditional markets, how did you come to figure out what those fundamentals are through your experience working with projects and investing and even trading crypto as well? Like, How did you come to form these fundamental ideas that you then latched onto to make new investments and trades? Yeah. So I think that uh, depending on who you, who you ask, you always get a, a few factors. But I think that ultimately, it always comes down to a few. Uh, I think one is definitely a team. I think uh, right now, I mean, except for Bitcoin and Ethereum to a certain extent, most of the mm-hmm. other assets in crypto right now are still pretty early stage where you need a, a, the, the team is driving a lot of the value creation right now. So I think that when you invest team, uh, how experienced they are, do they have uh, an execution track record, uh, and their view and their vision has definitely play a big part. So I think a good way to look at crypto as an asset, I mean, except for Bitcoin and Ethereum, is, is a venture investment with a public market liquidity. I think this is a, a right way to look at most of the crypto investment right now, especially true when it comes to DeFi. So team is one. Uh, second one is uh, the technical architecture of the protocol. I mean, some of them are built on a pretty flimsy foundation and some of them is built in a way that doesn't really allow them to scale as fast as they can. So this is what we look at. I mean, and the architecture, we look at both the economic design and, and also the technical design. So technical design, I wouldn't say we are expert, but we spend a fair amount of time in the space to understand what is the trade-off and what kind of the trade-off that the team or the specific, this protocol is pursuing to achieve certain outcome. Uh, and when it comes to economic side, I think it's getting closer to the token economics. This is something that we place a huge emphasis on to understand that uh, what is the value accrual behind the token? Is that direct link between the value generated by the network and the value that the token holder can capture? And I think another key factor is you need to look at I think token is a very strong incentive mechanism and also a, a way, yeah. So a token should design in a way that help to incentivize the growth of the specific project or protocol. I think it's very important 
uh, design element that the, to the crypto or token can have, but the traditional equity or, or like the, all the, the instrument doesn't have because I mean they are more regulated and there's a lot more uh, rigidity than on what they can do with their uh, uh, financial instrument. But token, the design space is vast, so you can be a lot more innovative on how are you using your token to achieve the outcome you want. Other factors are valuation. Obviously, that I think a good investment can be bad if you invest at an overinflated price. And sometimes a mediocre investment can be a good investment if the price is really low. So I think this is one thing, valuation. And how do we perform valuation in this space? It's still more art than science. We, I think that some people do discounted cash flow. We do do that to get a baseline of a valuation range so that if it get out of the absolute level that we will kind of avoid making the investment or it's like so below the range that I think that it's just so undervalued. I think the more important factor right now is look at certain level of multiples. Uh, I think that is, there's no perfect indicator, but like, let's say for DeFi, a very common uh, way to look at it is like the market cap to uh, TVL ratio or the price to revenue ratio uh, on a per, per token basis. So I think this is um, something that is imperfect, but and you adjust for the, the protocol specific nuances. But I think it's useful to get um, how the market is viewing the specific uh, protocol's growth potential and are the market undervaluing it. And so this is where you have a edge based on your understanding of the protocol's specific fundamental. And obviously another factor I think is a community involvement. I think that for the last two years, we have seen that how, how strong a certain asset can perform when they have a very strong community. Uh, evidence, I think, by Chainlink. I mean, Chainlink is just like, have the, probably the one of the second or the third most powerful community in the space right now. And they are they become like a top, top 10 crypto by asset class uh, over the last few months. And this is something that I would say most people don't really expect. It. And then the community is definitely a very big uh, driving force behind this. Actually, to anchor on that point, do you feel like for these DeFi projects, it's more important to have a really solid business model to start? Or is it more important to actually build a community first that will kind of help to iterate the business model as the protocol network continues to grow? I think it's, it's a good question. And I, I think that there's no perfect answer to this. <laughs> Because I've seen successful examples in both. Some build a very successful product and the community slowly uh, gather around it. I think like Uniswap is actually kind of this example because they don't have a token for most of the time until like one week ago. So, uh, but they built a fantastic product uh, with no uh, value, uh, values rent, uh, there's no rent seeking uh, in their protocol and it's permissionless and it's very easy to use. So they kind of always build a pretty uh, a big fan base that like the product. And when they have token, that serves as a shouting point for the community to rally around it. On the other hand, you have some projects that are like, actually I would say that for synthetics, in the initial stage, uh, the product is actually just a staking and you get a very high staking reward to incentivize people to participate in uh, providing more liquidity to the platform. So uh, the product wasn't that evident back but they managed to use this mechanism to bootstrap the community and the community become like a very big part of the user base for their product in the future. So I think that um, there is no perfect solution, but obviously that I think that the path is easier if you build a very strong product first, because then 
you have a more valid reason for people to really become your community member. Because if you do not have a strong product supporting it, uh, people can't, uh, the incentive to stay uh, is, is way weaker. Yeah. But again, I think that there's no perfect solution, no perfect answer to this. Because I think like for Bitcoin at the early stage, it's also not very usable. I mean, the wallet is kind of buggy. You need to write down your paper wallet. And a lot, that's how a lot of people lost their Bitcoin. Uh, but I mean, the, the, the most uh, hardcore uh, community member was forged through that time period as well. Mm-hmm. And going back to your point on valuation that you made, I saw a chart this week that showed the return of DeFi tokens from their 30-day high. And I mean, it's, it's pretty scary, <laughs> honestly, looking at this chart because you see how much these tokens are down. I mean, Wi-Fi, I think, was like down 46%. Synthetic was around 50%. Another token called Cream was down 66%. I mean, how do these short-term volatilities affect your valuation model then or your valuation framework when within just 30 days, I mean, these token prices are down so much? Yeah. So I think uh, that's a great question. Actually, I talked about it uh, on my Twitter a little bit. I think that even in the traditional uh, stock market, the price always uh, overshoots or undershoots a certain uh, assets are fundamental. I mean, rarely that it stay exactly in line with the fundamental, uh, probably only for the extremely uh, liquid uh, stocks that is well covered by multiple analysts already. So I think in crypto, it's even more so because that the liquidity are not as great uh, compared to the stock market. And the information asymmetry is also way higher. There's no... Uh, proper disclosure and there's uh, a lot more question on the regulator regulatory uncertainty and, and all this thing combined it just way really make the, the the people's perception on the fundamental of uh, this DeFi crypto even higher and I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum used to have this kind of wild swing uh, when they were at the earlier stage as well so I think this is part and parcel of uh, investing in like a, a pretty early stage investment. So I think you can, you can imagine that in a traditional startup world, if you invest in some of the startup like from a series A to series C, if they have a public market kind of liquidity, I think they will have a similar, similar volatility as well. Although their fundamental remain largely unchanged. So I think that how the, the, the massive movement is just that you can argue that at a, at a 30 day high, the project price actually overshoot its fundamental by a fair bit. And right now you can say that it also undershoot it by a fair bit as well. So that's how I perceive it. Mm-hmm. I mean, on a medium term basis, the, the valuation of the, of the project or the protocol doesn't change that much. It's just that the market perception on it has changed and that has led to a wild swing. And this actually gives an edge to uh, investors with a slightly longer time frame and with a stronger understanding of the space as well. And I, I mean, obviously I'm talking about my own book here. I think this is where uh, my and our funds uh, advantage and age come from because I mean we are one of the earliest uh, investors in the space and so we we kind of always uh, expect uh, how this space will grow and actually this uh, this rally over the last three months is a big uh, bonus for us because we kind of uh, expect the DeFi to grow at like a 100 to 200 kind of growth a year which actually is very massive <laughs> if you compare to any other space will kill for this growth but right now DeFi this year at the beginning of the year the total value log which is a kind of a proxy for the size of this industry grow from less than 1 billion to right now is around 9.5 billion I think it hit 10 billion at the peak so it grew 10 times 
just in less than nine months alone. So I think that uh, this kind of growth is just natural. It's going to bring a lot of volatility. And uh, this is just do to be expected yeah, for investing in this space. And so I think it's good to have like a slightly longer uh, time frame when you approach investing in space, this space. I mean, you can trade short term as well, but that's not really what we do. We took a more medium to long term approach when it comes to investing in this space. Yeah, I want to pull up one tweet that Chow just tweeted. It was like 30 minutes ago because it's very relevant to what we're talking about right now. And he said, remember, just because something crashed 50% doesn't necessarily mean it's cheap. It might have been more than two times overpriced before the crash, right? So it's it's kind of going back to your point there, which I think we we tend to forget when we're we're looking at such a hot space like DeFi, it's price is the ultimate marketing tool, right? So if if the price is crashing by something crazy like 50%, then people tend to assume, okay, that's that equals the death of DeFi, right? Or that equals the death of a project. But you're talking about actually going back to the fundamentals and understanding that this is just perhaps a blip in the market, but that there are underlying drivers that will continue to make this protocol robust and that this short-term price movement shouldn't be that much of a concern, right? Is is that an accurate way of summarizing a bit of what you just said? Uh, yes, I think that's uh, fairly accurate. Although I think that uh, there are some like more nuances here. It's like for specific protocol that is, have a strong reliance on the yield farming uh, on to support their valuation, obviously that uh, their fundamental may change with the uh, with the lower yield farming opportunity as well. So obviously that this is something you need to pay attention to. But I think for some some DeFi protocol, they uh, this uh, this DeFi uh, it doesn't really affect their fundamental that much. I mean, obviously, it affects their price, but I think that yeah, the fundamental is, is pretty uh, solid in the, yeah, in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Recently, you also tweeted reasons why a DeFi bull market would be more sustainable than the ICO market. It's quite a condensed tweet, very easy to digest. But for those who don't follow you already, can you just walk us through your thesis there for why a DeFi bull market is going to be more sustainable than the ICO market that we saw back in 2017? Yeah, sure. Uh, I can go on pretty long about this, but I think that to summarize this, I think that uh, finance uh, or like DeFi is the ultimate product market fit for crypto. I firmly believe this is the case uh, because that right now, permissionless blockchain, which is mostly Ethereum, is still pretty expensive to use. So the trade-off is fairly obvious. Uh, to achieve uh, censorship resistance and uh, decentralization, the trade-off is the performance and the cost of using it. So if you want to perform a, a computing on Ethereum, it's like at least a few hundred or few million times more expensive than doing it on a Amazon Web Services. And the performance is also way slower as well. So I think this is a trade-off that not many other use cases can tolerate. But for finance, it's slightly different. A lot of the time, even, I mean, for people who work in the financial industry, we will know that a lot of time that the, the banks are not, or the, the financial services are not really trying to compete on the price. I mean, the margin is always there. I mean, even right now, technology is so advanced, but if you're going to do an IPO, you're still paying like a 3-4% to the investment banks for helping you to raise the fund and help you build the book. So this is something that rely on their trust, their reputation and all those things. And this is something that uh, uh, DeFi can do a lot to uh, uh, make the process more effective and efficient. So I think that uh, finance is one of the very few use cases that can 
tolerate this trade-off. So I think that, uh, and ultimately Bitcoin is first and foremost a money. I mean, you can say it's not a very good form of money because it's very volatile, but uh, over the medium to long-term, people believe that it's a good store of value and it might be a good unit of account for certain people though. Some, someone measure their wealth in sets. <laughs> yeah, some people do that. So I think that uh, Bitcoin laid the foundation as a money, uh, but it's not sufficient to just have a money uh, in the blockchain space. You need the entire financial stack as well so that you, know, you do not have like a, some of the chokehold by some centralized company. So I think this is the DeFi is just a very natural uh, evolution of how people are using blockchain or like a crypto as a whole. Uh, so I think when you talk about like, when you believe that DeFi is the biggest product market fit for crypto, uh, this will kind of naturally lead you to conclude that uh, this is not a big, because I think ICO in itself, uh, is, it was never sustainable. I mean, the concept was really good at the beginning. It did achieve a lot of great outcome, but uh, there is a reason that venture capitalists uh, exist. And there's a reason that um, the regulator want to regulate like a, equity kind of investment as well because there's a huge information asymmetry so without a proper disclosure without a proper filtering process it's just a lot more likely that you have some charlatans that come out to sell their lemons to the unsustainable uh, retail so i think that that market was never gonna be like a fully the whole ico uh, way of uh, fundraising was not gonna be sustainable i mean you can argue it's some form of uh, DeFi, but we would naturally evolve to like a more more well-structured form of fundraising process, such as like a DICO model. So I think that this whole fundraising process, I think there's a there's a merit to it, but it has to evolve to a more uh, sustainable way where the token holder can have more oversight and uh, governance on how the fundraise fund is being used as well. So I think that's the first part. Um, so and I think right now, a lot of the DeFi protocol already have a product market fit and uh, traction and usage. And we are fairly active on the venture market side. So we see most of the protocol that are fundraising, they already have certain traction and uh, some usage. So they're not just like a pure idea and an uh, empty uh, stage to when they raise uh, a round. And second factor is uh, the round they are raising are also way, way more reasonable. And it's actually very in line with like a non-crypto uh, fintech startup valuation. So I would say most of the deal I've seen, the one that is uh, attractive, if they do not have a live product, they're usually valued between uh, 7 to 10 million. I think that's fair. I mean, most of the Y Combinator startup, when they finish the, the Y Combinator bootcamp, they kind of start at that valuation as well. And if they already have an existing product and traction, it depends on uh, how successful the product and uh, how big of the traction they have. It usually ranges between 30 to 50 million valuation, which is kind of like a series A valuation. Uh, yeah, I, which I think is, is very in line with like a traditional non-crypto startup scene right now. But I mean, compared to the ICO stage, we see some crazy like, I mean, I mean, I don't want to, yeah, I mean, you, you see protocol raising 100 million with a pure idea and the code is just like, haven't even get started sometimes. They spend most of their energy on marketing. So I think that is definitely not sustainable, but at least right now, we haven't really seen that happening yet. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that most of the fun right now, uh, the one that's still surviving, uh, most of them actually started in the bear market or during 2017. So they went through the whole cycle. So people like us, we, we are kind of more uh, aware of the problem of old, investing in the overinflated valuation. And we really don't want to repeat that. 
episode again. You ask every fan, every fan who don't want to relive that nightmare. So I think Arrow, the project, will just try to keep the the the, the, the investment uh, fund. We just try to keep the team the valuation and raise at the more reasonable level. Yeah, I think that's one thing. Uh, and I think another thing is the value leakage. I think that uh, this is very true. Like last time when all the ISO raised, I mean a lot of them are like the tourists and the mercenary opportunities that just come into the space to raise the fund. Uh, and then after that, they just uh, keep, uh, cash out the money into a dollar of stable coin and uh, just you know, pay the salary or the state or sometimes just a pure exit scam. Uh, but for DeFi, I think most of the team, they are keeping the fund raised within the ecosystem and some actually use it as their balance sheet to bootstrap their own protocol as well. Um, and even for the investor that make a lot of gain uh, in this space, uh, at least for my uh, anecdotal evidence, it might not be uh, the truth, but most of the investors are keeping most of the, their gain within the ecosystem as well to reinvest into the space and providing liquidity to help some uh, DeFi protocol group. At least that's that the case for me, myself. So uh, I think this whole value leakage is way more minimal. I mean, compared to the ICO days, uh, the parent company of uh, EOS, uh, Block One, they raised I think four billion. And if you check uh, the latest or the latest news article about them, uh, they're actually holding two to three billion dollar worth of uh, US uh, government bond right now. So they sold all of the crypto proceeds they raised and used it to buy the US government bond. So that is a big uh, value outflow from the crypto ecosystem to the non-crypto ecosystem. When, when you don't see that much in DeFi right now, because I mean the yield is so high, why would you cash it out for like a non-existent yield in the traditional finance? You even you do like a uh, the very conservative uh, lending, uh, you still get like a five to ten percent right now. So yeah, I think all these factor uh, combined, it just lead me to believe that the whole DeFi bull market is uh, way more sustainable than the ICO bull market. Hey, Unstackers, I wanted to let you know that Amber Group has just rolled out our new mobile app. The Amber app is designed to help you achieve optimal investment returns through market-leading interest rate products, yield enhancement, and risk management tools, all in one application. Right now, when you refer a friend, you can earn 30% of your friend's trading fees and 10% of your friend's interest earnings. Your friend will also earn 10% extra interest. Plus, new Amber app users are able to earn 16% APR on select Bitcoin and Ethereum time deposits. Invite your friends and start earning rewards together. Amber is your gateway to crypto finance. Download the Amber app and select Apple and Android app stores today. Yeah, that's incredible. Thanks so much for breaking that down. And I want to go in deeper about some of the things that you've said. And I think the best way to do that is actually to turn to Defiance Capital and talk more about how it's structured, you know, in terms of your portfolio allocation, talk about your investment strategy as well, because I think that will give our audience a very clear picture as to why you believe the types of things that you've been saying during the course of this conversation. So yeah, why don't we start with the basics then? How is Defiance Capital structured right now as a fund? So Defiance Capital is actually an open-ended fund right now. So I think that in terms of a fund structure, uh, we are closer to hedge fund than a pure venture fund. But that said that we are not really uh, a trader in the sense when it comes to operating the fund. Uh, because I think that when it comes to DeFi investment, that is not really productive. So I would say that we are like an actively managed fund. 
but we don't really trade around our position. So our average holding period uh, is usually at least from like a few months uh, and up to years. And actually, I mean, it's a very cliche term, but we like we also like to say that our favorite holding period is kind of forever because when you invest in some really good investment, uh, if the growth is just a uh, very impressive and it, it always outgrown its previous valuation there's really not no reason you should sell i mean this is the case for us with uh synthetics we invested in uh, uh 2018 and we are still holding synthetics as of now because we think that they still have a massive unrealized growth potential so uh that is uh yeah so that's how the funds being structured and in terms of uh we a huge part of our position i would say that is between liquid and semi-liquid so uh, it's mostly the DeFi protocol that already uh, listed on the exchanges like uh, Synthetics, Aave, Kyber, Nexus Mutual. So all these are fairly liquid. And we think that um, this is actually one of the biggest advantage of uh, crypto that you get some early stage uh, return, like exponential return, but you still get some level of public market liquidity. And we also kind of help the team a little bit in terms of uh, counteracting the price. I mean, when the price gets to a very ridiculous uh, level, I think we haven't really seen that yet, but we can actually, I mean, take some profit uh, there. And when the market is overcorrecting, we will be the support again, I mean, to, to buy back some of the investment we have sold. I mean, we don't do this that often, but only where the price really moves to a very instant level. So this is one thing that we do. Uh, and also semi-liquid, uh, I would say that, uh, yeah, some of the investment, uh, probably that for our size, we can't really enter and exit as we want uh, because of, let's say the market is just like a, a very, uh, like the, the liquidity is at less than a million a day. Given our size, it's just unlikely for us to fully enter and exit. So I would say that we can exit and enter if we want, but it's not that liquid. So we, I categorize that as a semi-liquid. And some of the illiquid stuff, I think the, the venture deal we did, which we are uh, doing more and more because I think that we do see uh, a lot more new idea and new innovation coming into this space. Uh, so yeah, we, we, we do uh, make this kind of venture investment where our investment is locked for six months up to three years as well. So we, we do this uh, yeah, investment as well. And mm -hmm. I think when it comes to investment strategy, uh, there's a three main one. First is uh, taking a very deep dive fundamental research uh and using the factors which i talked about previously to look at the, the fundamentals of the DeFi protocol we invest in uh another the things we look at is the on-chain crypto analytics i think this is more on a short to medium term uh, uh fact the things we look at to see that if the market is agreeing with us i mean sometimes uh you want to be uh you want to get a sense of how the market is feeling as well so uh on-chain crypto analytics uh, help us to see that if there's other investor that is also accumulating the similar investment we are doing as well. And sometimes we can, I mean, some right now people are still not very, uh, I would say very careful with their on-chain wallet hygiene. So you can actually see a lot of the previous investment and how, and kind of how big that, that specific address is as well. So you can sometimes see a whales that is accumulating a very decent amount of this investment and they're not done buying it yet because I mean they do not want to move the market price. They just slowly buy it over a certain time period. Um, so I and you, when you see this kind of accumulation pattern by a few whales, it's usually a very bullish sign because I mean usually this whale, uh, I mean they don't become whale by for no reason. So they have obviously that they have certain knowledge and they also uh, 
bullish about this project. And this is something that we would like to see that means so that it agree with our thesis. And what tools we use, I mean, we use a, a mix of few tools. Um, you obviously use Nansen. Uh, Nansen is a, a on-chain on uh, crypto analytic tool um, and it's pretty powerful. And we also use a view base as well. And last time we also use uh, like, uh, I think Coinmetrics, uh, but Coinmetrics is small for like a Ethereum and Bitcoin and also to detect the stable coin flows from in and out of exchange as well. So that let us take a little bit of view on the on the market positioning on 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 a major like Bitcoin Ethereum, um yeah so this is the two main tools right now I would say view base and uh, Nansen is definitely the two most popular one right now, <clears throat> and uh, another one is taking a constructive activist approach I think that uh this is very similar to what a lot of VC did that where they actually spend a lot of uh, time to help the project they invested uh so they they like to use a term like operator. Like it means that they get their hands dirty to help the project they invested to, to succeed as well. So I think the, some of the example we did uh, is especially on a token economics level. I think right now everyone kind of realized the importance of it. But I would say that six months ago, that is not the case. A lot of projects still you know, have a very flimsy token economics that is actually counterproductive to the protocol. Uh, so actually, uh, Aave, a few months ago, they come up with a new Aavenomics that how are they going to uh, revamp and improve that token economics so that it's much more in line with uh, the growth of the protocol so that it and actually the token serve a more uh, valid use case where it actually serves as a backstop to the protocol that in case of an under collateralization event the, the RV token that is being staked actually will be uh, will become a sell-off to, to make sure the platform or the protocol as a sufficiently collateralized again. I think this is very powerful because it gives more assurance to to the users of Aave. And actually in, in the sense that the, the Aave stakers are not like uh, staking and getting a return for nothing. They are providing certain risk uh, backstop to the protocol as well. So I think this is a, a very good design. And obviously for Kyber as well, they went through a token economics upgrade that which we are quite involved with the team to provide them a feedback and what we think is the right way. So they went through a very successful uh, governance uh, upgrade where the fee uh, generated by the protocol, a big part of it go to the Kyber Network token holder that participate in the governance process as well. So this uh, aligned uh, with the growth incentive of the, uh, of the protocol way more than the previous design. <coughs> and also, uh, also have, have more uh, incentivize the community member to participate more actively in the protocol as well, which I think is very important because at the early stage, uh, you, 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 are, you want your community member to give the, as much feedback as possible and really to participate into the give feedback to, to help you grow your protocol together. I think this is a really the power of crypto that should be utilized to the maximum extent compared to doing a business in a traditional traditional world. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I think that's yeah, that's kind of the sort of example, yeah, uh, for constructive activists. That's great. I mean, people who have been tuning into the show, who've been following us even prior to this investor series, uh, know that we've been talking a lot about DeFi. You know, we we ran a DeFi uh, Define series as well to kind of introduce our audience to the various projects in the space and also to investors such as yourselves and understand kind of how different people approach either trading or investing in DeFi projects. And for those who are still not convinced that DeFi is here to stay, I'm going to play devil's advocate 
and have the position that DeFi is not creating real utility for the world today in the way that we see stable coins providing real utility and moving capital across borders, right? So how would you convince me that there actually is real utility being built in DeFi today as someone who is really on the ground, you know, not sleeping much and have a hand on the pulse of all the things that are going on in DeFi right now? Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's actually a great example you bring up about stable coins. Uh, and actually, even on stable coin alone, uh, I think you can see how DeFi have helped the growth of stable coin. So uh, I, I actually, I would consider stable coin a very core pillar of DeFi as well, because I mean, uh, we have a lot of very successful uh, fiat back uh, stable coin like uh, Circle, USDC, or PAX, but uh, these are not, not like the ideal fully censorship resistant stable coin that the crypto community want to have. So I think a, a lot of the crypto community want to see an alternative version as well. So DAI is one of them, uh, and the Synthetics USD by Synthetics is also one of them. So uh, like when you look at it, like the total supply of Circle, USD, USDC, uh, have actually doubled in the last two or three months. So they went from below $1 billion to I think $2 billion in total supply. And I will, I will attribute that to a huge part is to the growth of DeFi. Uh, because when you compare PAX, PAX is also like a fiat-backed stable coin, uh, similarly very well regarded in the space, but they have pre pretty stagnant because PAX just has a way less integration within the DeFi space. So like uh, USDC have like, more than double to 2 billion and PAX is I think still below 500 million when you come to total supply. So you can see that how the growth of DeFi have helped to bootstrap the, the, the circulation of USDC, which is a, a very important stable coin. So I mean, obviously that for this uh, money, I mean, you always need more liquidity, uh, more circulation so that more and more people can use it as well, right? So expanding the supply. So I think in that use case alone, DeFi already helped expand uh, the, the, the circulation of uh, USDC and also USDT to a big extent because uh, USDT right now is also pretty well integrated within the DeFi ecosystem and I think DeFi definitely play uh, some part in helping it to expand uh, the supply so right now I think it's close to I think 15 or 16 billion uh, and, and when you look at it Bitcoin price has been pretty stable over the last few months so uh, I would say that DeFi is definitely a very big contributor to the, to the growth of these both these two stable coins and when you talk about, uh, I think that uh, a lot of the early stage uh, innovation always look like a toy. I think this is a very famous uh, uh, phrase by Chris Dixon. as a partner of uh, A16Z. And I think that this is, this is true when you look at the early stage of like a social network, like uh, Facebook. I mean, we all, most of us have, have watched the movie, The Social Network before. I mean, it was literally like a social network platform created specific for Ivy League students. That was a very niche and targeted community. I mean, there's only less than what 11 Ivy League university. So that's by definition a very exclusive, very niche community. You need a harvard.edu domain to even open a membership account. And obviously it slowly expanded from there to the like other university. And after it hit certain uh, success in among the university students, it started to spread among the young millennials. And obviously then after that, it spreads the mainstream where right now like it has more users than any country in the world. I think Facebook have around 5 billion total users, close to that. So yeah, it's definitely the biggest social network in the world right now. And I think it looked like a toy when it gets started. I mean, nobody kind of uh, 
expected uh, Facebook can grow to this stage. And if you look at like a BSV, one of the very famous venture fund, I mean, they, they feature Facebook as sort of a very popular anti-portfolio where they say that it's an investment that didn't invest and it was a very big miss. So I think this is how DeFi looked to me right now. It, at the early stage, a lot of things look like a toy. And obviously right now it's a very power user focused. It's only uh, the, the core enthusiasts and the hobbies that are using it right now. But I think this is how uh, all the early stage innovation is. Like you always need certain level of bubble and certain level of early stage uh, excitement to bring the core group of people in. And these people serve as the as a gospel and uh, the ambassador to slowly spread the message and bring more and more people in. And but I think obviously that I don't think DeFi will scale as fast as social network because ultimately that you are touching some area that's way more regulated compared to like. Uh, social network which is not not that regulated so uh, it will not grow as fast but i think that in terms of the value it brings to the world it will be similarly as important as well because i think that in a lot of the right now the entire world financial system is a very big dollar hegemony and the, and the u.s government can largely dictate whether you are cut off from a financial system or not i mean so i think for right or long or wrong this actually increased the cost of serving many different customers. I mean, even for US uh, citizens themselves. I mean, uh, let's say in, in Singapore, certain banks actually, they do not want to serve US citizens because just due to the cost of compliance as well. So I think that DeFi is uh, in the future, I mean, even right now, can provide some sort of parallel universe where you can actually assess some level of financial use cases. And even if you remove the, the speculative components, you can use DeFi as like a, like a some a store of value vehicle, you can keep your stable coin. I would say right now the risk is fairly small if you keep it in like a regulated stable coin in a very well regarded non custodial wallet, or even you put it into like a the, the well regarded uh, lending and borrowing protocol like Aave or Compound. I would say right now the risk is is, is there is some smart contract risk, but I would say that they are sufficiently low that uh it should the the risk of happening. I would say that you can look at how. Nexus Mutual is pricing the cover risk of uh, Aave. I think it's, it's less than 2% to insure your, your deposit on Aave. So you can actually even bought an insurance to, to insure your deposit on Aave as well. So I think that actually is a great view on how the market is pricing the risk as well. So even in this use case alone, it is a very great uh, utility. And I think people should also should not underestimate the crypto population right now. I think DeFi might be small, but the whole crypto population is not small. I mean, on estimate, I mean, there's around more than 10 million of registered users on Coinbase. Uh, I would say the total crypto user, but not that active one, is probably more than a million. I mean, this includes the Bitcoiners. Obviously, I mean, some of them are still skeptical of DeFi right now. As more and more people have their wealth denominated in crypto, this is a user, target user that we should serve as well. I mean, like me, I have more wealth in crypto than my fiat, uh, fiat rule. So if I want to take a mortgage, actually I can borrow more from my wealth in crypto compared to the non-crypto space. And you can say that I'm underserved by the traditional financial system. So I, I think that the crypto De DeFi is actually serving me well in a certain way as well. So I think this uh, target user of around 1 million plus should not be underestimated as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For our audience, Arthur had a great conversation with Chow Wang. It's on YouTube where you talked about these use cases, right, within DeFi, and one of them was unsecured loans, 
which is going to really, I think, take off over the next couple of months. So check out that conversation because they they talk about that a fair bit. But Arthur, it's been a couple weeks, I think, since that interview. Would you add anything? Have you built on to your thesis around unsecured loans there or under collateralized loans? Has anything exciting happened over the past few weeks that you can share? I would say uh, right now, it's still most of it uh, underground. Uh, I think there's like two or three uh, DeFi protocol with uh, by a very well, uh, very capable team backed by very seasoned and uh, successful investor to tackle this problem. Uh, and I think uh, they take a slightly different approach. One, like a teller backed by Framework Ventures, they are trying to build an online credit identity. Uh, like it's like an Equifax of DeFi uh, so that people can use this to uh, take on under uh, unsecured borrowing. Another one is to build like a mutual approach. Uh, that's kind of similar to how some European banks is like they work on a mutual basis, like people watch for each other so that they can borrow from the entire mutual. So I think both these uh, uh, approach have their pros and cons. I think that uh, I think it's, a, it's a too early to say. I think that both there is a room for both ways to succeed as well. So I, I think it's just a very exciting and how people are trying to tackle this. And I think as we attract more and more uh, entrepreneur and innovators into this space, I believe that this uh, this challenge can be tackled to uh, in the future. So I don't have I don't really have any more to add because I think that there's obviously a lot of the roadblock we need to tackle uh, before sure. we can mm-hmm. really have uh, this thing happen. But I think a lot of the teams are trying to tackle this. I, I think that some of them will, will prove successful uh, in future in doing that. Arthur, as we wrap up, I have a few final questions, three in particular, I'd love to get your thoughts on and your responses here can be short and sweet. To start off, what's one valuable and meaningful way you as a crypto investor can support an early stage project? I would say the first and foremost is to be a user. Uh, of the of the early stage project, I think whether is DeFi or non DeFi, I think it's both uh, as important, especially so in DeFi. I would add. I mean, when you look at it, the uh, most of the very successful DeFi investor, when you can see the those that are more popular, uh, they are all a very big user, power user of the DeFi protocol themselves. So they have a very strong understanding of uh, of 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 the stuff they invest in as well. So I think this is a very important thing because then the, the investor can provide a lot of valuable feedback to the, the project team as well. And I think this is very valuable. Uh, second thing is probably, I mean, for DeFi in particular, uh, providing some early stage liquidity to bootstrap the platform. Because uh, let's say you are like a DEX, like using an, an uh, AMM approach so that the, the, the investor can provide uh, some early stage liquidity that he, he, he know that it might not be profitable to bootstrap some liquidity that, so that the platform can start operating. So, and, and obviously some of, a lot of the guidance that uh, a traditional VC would give them as well, such as some advice on the fundraising and how should they raise the fund, who should they raise from, and uh, like some other like uh, operational issues such as like uh, registering your domicile, your legal entity on the hiring. Yeah, I think, but I think for, I mean, for crypto particular, it's, it's really about being a user and also providing some early stage liquidity for DeFi in particular. What's one of the craziest risks you've taken in the last three years since you've gotten into crypto? Um, I would say, um, I think concentration risk. I think this is, I think that, uh, I think that there's there's probably no perfect uh, 
uh, answer to this uh, and you is all right or wrong about it i mean uh, i think back in the days my portfolio used to be a lot more concentrated i would say right now it's still fairly concentrated compared to the traditional uh, non-crypto fund but i think that uh, in crypto uh, diversification is, is very nuanced i mean let's say you take a, like a top 10 crypto for example uh, if you just diversify there's no point i mean you might as well just hold bitcoin ethereum because that's where most of the value are being generated and where most of the economic activity is happening as well. Let's say you invest in like, I mean, that's my personal opinion, like Litecoin or like Bitcoin Cash, EOS. I mean, there's just not much economic activity happening with them. I don't, I don't really think that they are investable. And I think that they are, in long term, their monetary premium will be chipped away by Bitcoin and Ethereum as well. So I just don't think they're investable. So if you just diversify across the top 10, you you actually getting diversification, so you might as well just invest in Bitcoin Ethereum. So there's a rationale for having a slightly more concentrated portfolio. But I think the, the most risky stuff I did in the early stage of my investment journey is, I mean, a certain investment form more than fifty percent of my investment because I think at that stage the valuation is so compelling uh, and the fundamental is so compelling as well. So I think that is the the risk is worth taking. And obviously, I think that uh, when you are at the earlier stage. I think going a little bit more concentrated to build your wealth can be justified because I mean, obviously you don't do that when you're a billionaire unless you're Elon Musk. But, um, but I mean, I think for a certain level of wealth, it is justifiable because I mean, if you lose it, you're still young, you can still make it back anyway. But if you make it, it's life-changing life amount of money. So depending on how you perceive your utility, yeah, how you're operating it. Taking a fair amount of concentration risk is some of the biggest risks I've taken. But obviously that comes with a very strong understanding of the of the teams, of the fundamental as well. I mean, I literally talk to the team almost on a daily basis. I mean, if anything happens, I'll be one of the first few to know. So I think this is some of the biggest risks I've taken. Mm-hmm. Great. Who have been some of your major influences in your crypto journeys so far? Um, I, I think on this one, I would like to credit uh, I think the, the partners uh, of uh, Multicoin Capital. So, I mean, I mean, they do get a lot of like sometimes for having a very controversial opinion. And I, I, I might not agree with them uh, for a lot of times, actually. Uh, but I think that they, are, they have a they're, they're, they're good uh, uh, opinion leader on, and good thinker when it comes to this space and how are they approaching the ecosystem. I think that they have a very strong thesis uh, on, on this space. I mean, they talk about thesis like uh, open finance, uh, Web3, and uh, global sovereign uh, censorship-resistant money, which I really uh, mm-hmm. uh, agree with these three mega theses. Uh, so I think this is uh, some in their previous blog post. And how are they thinking about this space? I think it's very valuable on how do you think as an investor. But obviously, I think when it comes to uh, specific strategy and execution, I think we have quite a lot of difference. But I think the way they, they approach this space is very valuable. And I do learn a lot from uh, reading, their, reading their blog and their article they put out in the, in the, early, in the previous uh, stage, like 2017 to 2018. Um, I think this is uh, in terms of, uh, yeah. And yeah, I, I think that's uh, one of the major ones. And I think that, uh, I think I work pretty closely with uh, Suzu and Kao. I mean, they're the partner mm-hmm. of Trios Capital. Uh, and definitely they have uh, quite a fair bit of influence on how I approach this uh, crypto investing as well. Yep. Great, great. Well, Arthur, I very much enjoyed our conversation. Um, how can our audience connect with you to learn more about yourself and Defiance Capital? 
Um, I mean, I'm fairly active on Twitter. So, I mean, you can Twitter DM me. Uh, my DM is open. So, yeah, I will, I will try to respond as much as possible. Uh, I mean, right now, it's just a lot of inquiries, so I can't respond to all. Um, and also, my, uh, my Telegram uh, is uh, Arthur0x. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you, you can message me there as well. I mean, I I'm, will be able to respond if I, when I find the time to do that. <laughs> Get some sleep first. I think that's the main thing, you know, prioritize that. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. I mean, hopefully this market correction, uh, I think just uh, give you less FOMO on investing. So I think that hopefully should be allowed us to sleep more. All right. Well, I certainly learned a lot. Appreciate you coming on, Arthur, and uh, hope to bring you back on very soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Yep, thanks. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Also check out our crypto unstacked YouTube channel. I'll provide details in the show notes. Until next time, take care unstackers and see you at the next episode.